Before we get started today, I wanted to let you know about my new songwriting instruction video course called Tools Not Rules. I designed this two and a half hour, six part video course to help songwriters finish more songs and become more confident and more capable in their songwriting and creativity. The course is $97, but for the next couple of months, listeners of this podcast can get 30% off that price by going to rosskingmusic.com slash unfinished30. That's rosskingmusic.com slash unfinished30. Now let's jump into the podcast. Hey, this is Ross King, and you're listening to Unfinished, a limited series podcast where I take you song by song through the writing and recording process of my newest record, also called Unfinished. For me, the process of making a record is emotional and thrilling and exhausting and all kinds of other things, and I look forward to taking you inside and sharing with you some of the stories of the journey. Thanks for joining me. Let's dive in. Second Samuel chapter 12 says this, So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And Nathan replied to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hethite to be your own wife. When I first started writing All My Heroes Are Underdogs nearly 10 years ago, I was writing about the David that kills Goliath and who is brave and self-sacrificing and an unlikely underdog. By the time I finished the song less than a year ago, I was writing about the David in this story. And the complicated thing is that it's exactly the same guy. Around 2013, 2014, I was working on songs for a record that ended up being called Unfettered that I did in 2015. And an earlier version of All My Heroes Were Underdogs was in that pile of songs. Unfettered ended up being primarily themed around 
my recovery of grief and depression following my dad's death in 2012, and a bunch of songs on that record were very much about that. You know, More Now, Love is a Hammer, Where I Was Then, On That Shining Shore. There was just a bunch of songs about me dealing with grief, frustration, anger, depression, doubt. And this song didn't really fit those themes, but you got to understand that I was feeling very much like a defeated struggler. I felt very useless. I was depressed, so I felt very broken, very unworthy. I just felt like I was probably going to bomb pretty badly at life (laughs) at the time. And I was struggling to be a good dad, a good husband, a good uh, minister. The only place in my life that was kind of working was writing songs. And so I just thought, well, what if I reframed some Bible stories as underdog stories? It's less that these are stories that are important because of any theological truth, and maybe I tell them as if they're important for this one universal appealing idea that underdogs win. So that that's where it, it started, and it's really where it finished at the time. So I wrote the two verses, uh, the David verse, the Jesus verse, and then the bridge, which is no longer there, was how I felt at the time. And it said, we had no business trying to do this. We were just misfits. You made us miracles. How mysterious that you have chosen us to do the glorious and the impossible. And then another chorus. And that was it. And I thought, this is really good. But I knew that it wasn't amazing. And so it was in the big pile that I took to the sessions for Unfettered. And I ended up just not recording it. Really glad I made that decision. He gathered five smooth stones. He'd only need one. With no armor on, went up against that heathen. And he had no right. Have you ever been to a concert or an open mic or any sort of singer performance and someone gets on stage and says, I just wrote this song today and I want to show it to you. And then they play a song that they just wrote that day. I never do that because I'm too nervous that I'll change my mind about something I said or a lyric choice or a melody. I'm usually letting a song sit for a long time before I let people hear it. You know, this current world of like people on TikTok sharing half a song that that they wrote earlier that day, that, that just freaks me out. And it's ironic because I'm a verbal processor in conversation, so I'm very likely to say stupid things. And maybe that's why I'm like this with music, because I don't want to verbally process my life um, and then have it recorded and distributed and listened to by hundreds or thousands or whatever. All that to say, sometimes I let songs float around in my head for days or weeks or months or even years before I feel completely okay with letting them out into the world. And that's how... All My Heroes Are Underdogs was. All my heroes are underdogs. So it sat around for six or seven years, something like that. And in 2018, my wife and my son and I were watching a show called Timeless 
it was a show on NBC for a couple of years about about time travel. And I won't go through the whole thing, but the basic plot is these three people have to go around in a time machine chasing around another time machine to keep America from falling apart, sort of. Without any spoilers, that's the basic plot. And the three main characters are Lucy, a white woman who's a historian, Wyatt, a white man who's a soldier and is sort of there to provide protection, and a black computer genius who's one of the only people in the world that can pilot these time machines, and his name is Rufus. And every single week, there's sort of a subtext or even an outright joke where Rufus says, okay, wherever we're going in history, to the Alamo or to the 1920s or whatever, it's going to be worse for me than it is here and now. And for those of you who don't know, our children are adopted and our oldest two sons are biracial with white and black uh, families of origin, birth families. So one night we're watching it with our oldest son and... The plot involves Vegas in the 1950s. There's Frank Sinatra music and people in cool period clothing and that sort of thing. And my wife says, the 50s are so cool. And my son says, not if you're me. And he's smiling when he says it. He's kind of winking at us a little bit. But his point hit us so hard that I paused the show and we spent about an hour talking about that. And... It was a humbling moment because I've been a parent of these kids for their whole lives. At this point, this particular son was around 16, so I've known him for a long time and I've considered these things. And I'm a well-read, deliberately curious person who tries to learn. But I'd never thought of this. I just somehow never thought of it that if that if you took our story and put us back 70 years, my son would have a miserable and difficult uh, experience and one that's very, very different from mine. And in fact, he probably couldn't have even been my son. So that was one piece of me starting to think a little bit differently. And this, for me, you got to understand, for me, this wasn't political at all. This was just in my home, something has been revealed to me, something that I met, that I care about a great deal and that I have to deal with. So I began to deal with it. I read books. I had conversations I prayed, I read the scriptures, I did whatever I could do to find other trustworthy perspectives in these issues. And I just started to wake up a little bit and to realize there was so much I hadn't thought about. I read history, I read things about the justice system, I read statistics, boring statistics. You guys got to remember, I was a political science major in college, history minor, so I'm a nerdy reader and researcher at heart. And I did that. I dove in hard. And I did more studying on these topics than I've done on anything in years and years and years. And unfortunately, as you start to do that kind of research in 2020 or 2021, it starts to get really political and partisan. And I just have to confess to you all that that's very, very frustrating for me because my approach was, these are my sons. This is their experience. And I'm trying to reconcile their experience with the gospel and with my life and with my family. And everywhere I turn, trying to get opinions and data and truth on this, I'm bumping into politics and partisanship and weaponizing of language and 
manipulation. And so there's going to be a temptation for some of you to see this as me taking a side politically. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I just don't care. That's not that never was my approach. I never read any of these things or had these conversations or researched or prayed because I wanted to uh, find some political stance or affirm a political stance or reject a political stance. I just wanted to know how to love and care for and be near to and identify with and empathize with my children. So another part of this was I just started asking them questions. I remember one afternoon I sat them down and I said, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but is there anything about your experience as essentially black teenage boys in Williamson County, Tennessee, that you think I don't know about as your dad? And immediately they had stories. And they both talked about a thing called the N-word pass, where other kids, kids at their youth group, kids at their Christian environments, asked them if they could have a pass to say the N-word if a rap song came on that said it or if there was some kind of a moment when they wanted to say it, could they have a pass to say it? That's a thing. They both had been called all kinds of racial slurs. One of my sons at a Christian camp was called monkey and slave for a good chunk of his week at the camp. One of my sons um, had been accused of stealing when he was wandering around a convenience store one day and we were just trying to get gas. He was just wandering around the store and they asked him to show his pockets. Look, and I don't, I'm not saying all this stuff means that racism is alive and well and America's awful. There's n- that's not any of what I'm saying. I'm just telling you these are the stories my sons told me when I asked them. And there was more. There's much more than this. But in the midst of all of this, two things happened sort of simultaneously. One is I began to do a pretty thorough study of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And I came across the Selma Bridge marches and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and all the stuff that sort of happened around that time. And I, for some reason, thought of all my heroes are underdogs again. And I immediately knew what I wanted to do with that ending. And so I started working on a new bridge and a third verse that could perhaps reframe for me and for anyone who has ears to hear the truths of America's racial history and our cultural and collective sins against people of color in our past. And like I said, I know this stuff's controversial, and I know it's for some reason partisan, but I'm just begging you to reject the notion that politics gets to categorize this for you and label it for you. Let the gospel, let the commands of Jesus reframe this for you. Let that be the guardrails and the parameters and the filters and the lenses through which you work this out. That's what I'm doing. And if that upsets or subverts some political securities and certainties that you have, that's okay. You have the gospel. You don't need to be identified as anything other than a child of God, nor do I. And that's what I'm letting it do. But that's a digression, and I just get nervous even talking about this because of how worked up everybody gets. The point is, I rewrote the song, I rewrote the ending, and I don't regret it. And if you haven't read about the Selma marches, I would encourage you to. If you haven't read about how the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came to be, 
I would encourage you to. And allow that to uh, shape some of your view of underdogs and of your place and my place in stories. And just be reminded that you and I, we are prone to always be the hero in our own story and to always view our way as the right way. And we are slow to question the way we view the world. And we shouldn't be. What are we afraid of? Let's boldly do what the Gospels tell us to do, which is to love our neighbor as much as we we love ourselves. Let's boldly do what the Psalms tell us to do, which is to search our hearts and ask God to search our hearts and show us what needs to change. That's, That's just common Bible stuff. And I'm doing it, and I hope that you can do it too. And I hope this song helps you do it. I remember when I first started caring about songwriting and noticing songwriting, I picked up on this thing where, particularly in country songs, you'd have a, a sort of tactic, a, a kind of method where a song would have a chorus that's essentially the same all three times, but each time that it's sung, it means something different. So a classic example would be Tim McGraw's Don't Take the Girl, where, you know, the first verse, it's he's a little kid. He doesn't want his dad to take the girl on the fishing trip. And then there's some kind of a crime situation, I think, and he's in love with the girl and she's in danger. And so he's asking this criminal not to take the girl. And then the ending is something about a baby being born and he's praying, don't take the girl. You know, it's a country song. But I love how it sort of pulls you down a journey and you each time you think you know where they're going with it, there's something a little bit new. You know, All My Heroes Are Underdogs had that, but what was funny was that I didn't intend for it to have that. When I started, I just had this idea about David. And so the whole thing is meant to be kind of a, just when the story's about to fall apart, things come back together in this surprising way. So it's... All my favorite stories have moments when everything seems to be lost. All my heroes are underdogs. So it's just about stories having a surprise. But in the second chorus, you go from this warrior coming to do violence, and he overcomes against the odds, and instead you have this Lamb of God coming to bring peace and love and hope and showing a way that is not violence, but yet he's killed brutally murdered and how does he come back from that so it's i'm just trying to believe in a world where the wounded can rise when they fall so it's different because it's not just jesus came back from the dead but in that moment jesus death represents unlikely heroes can come back they can get wounded they can get hurt they can get beat up they can get killed and still get back up Right, And so then when the third chorus comes, you know, by that time I had changed my whole view of what the song was about, and now I've talked about maybe being the villain in some of the stories, and I've gone through the story of the Selma marches, and that's a very uncomfortable, challenging, sort of 
perspective-shifting kind of story, and suddenly it's outside of the biblical narrative, and it's and it's and it's not something that happened two thousand or several thousand years ago. It's something that happened seven years before I was born, and the whole thing has a different kind of realism, a different kind of weight at that point. And so I wanted to say, all the best stories actually change the way I think and give me a new perspective on the world. So it's like, all my favorite stories make me deal with the ways I've been wrong. All my heroes are underdogs. And then repeating what I did in the first two choruses. So suddenly all three elements come together. You have, I love stories where it looks like it's all going to fall apart. Certainly, the civil rights movement as a whole and the Selma marches, which there were three of those marches, or you could say two and a half, but the first one certainly looked like everything seemed to be lost. And you have these people getting beaten, many of them to within inches of their life on national television. And so I want to believe in a world where the wounded can rise when they fall. And you can visualize, there's very famous images and video clips of this moment in history at the first march. Other video and clips and audio of Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, his how long, not long speech after the third march when they made it all the way across to Birmingham. And so you have, you know, wounded people rising when they fall and finding victory. And then finally, you have this element of all the great stories make me rethink. They make me rethink what I thought was true and made make me look at the world in a new way, a better way, a more whole and exhaustive and comprehensive and empathetic and gospel-saturated way. That's what a great story does. That's what I want my songs to do. That's what I wanted this song to do. All my favorite stories Make me deal with the ways I've been wrong All my heroes are underdogs Here is my good friend Mark Campbell to talk a little bit about the production of All My Heroes Are Underdogs. Underdogs is one of my favorite songs on the record, and... It's one of my favorite songs that Ross has written. And in addition, it was really fulfilling, giving it its own life. I remember Ben and I did a lot of exploring with sounds and approaches, and he put a bunch of little contact mics on different household things and created a bunch of percussion loops that I took and ran through a bunch of gear. And the same thing with the electric guitars. We were running the guitars through filters and synthesizers and it just created this really cool special palette one reason i'm continually grateful for mark and ben is that they take these complicated or uncomfortable or awkward or even off-putting ideas that i bring them and they clothe them in beauty and art and creativity and ear candy and I'm super grateful for that because I'd want to get these messages across in a way that feels gracious and beautiful and respectful and artistically lovely and pleasant and palatable. But sometimes the ideas are, are just thorny and difficult. And I think that what I'd want to say as I close this episode is that if you hear me picking on America 
or picking on our history or picking on one aspect of America, like white people or something. Please don't hear that because what I really wanted to do with this song and what I want to do with my life is to look honestly at myself and at the things that I believe and to look honestly at my heroes and their stories and at my places of security. If the things we love and believe are robust and solid, we have nothing to fear by looking just as deeply at the scars and mistakes as we do at the victories. In fact, to do anything less is a disservice to the truth and to the people who are affected by our heroes and by their stories. See, I think America is actually a lot like David. As a nation, we faced impossible odds, we fought giants to win glorious underdog victories, and as a nation, we've stolen the favorite lamb from our poor neighbor so we can feed our rich house guest. Everybody knows both of those big stories about David, the defeat of Goliath and the crimes against Uriah and his wife. And yet he's still widely regarded in a pretty favorable way, a heroic way. People called him the man after God's own heart. And it would do no good to his story to leave out or skim over his brave defeat of the heathen Philistine. And it would do no good to ignore or undersell the horrific and inexcusable crimes he committed against Uriah and Bathsheba. Like David, America benefits and is truly served by telling the whole story. So I think it's only fitting and somehow beautifully prophetic that at the end of the third and final march across the bridge at Selma, Dr. King quoted David in his speech. Obviously, I can't know what was going on in his head. I would never pretend to know. But from the speech, it sounds like he saw that day a victory and a little bit of hope that things were moving forward, at least a little bit. And I, I think, seems like he was sort of trying to speak prophetically about a future where America could someday become the best version of itself. And on behalf of that America, he cried out, like David, in the 13th Psalm. How long, O Lord? And I, I can't play you the speech here because I don't have the copyrights and I want to honor Dr. King's estate and his family. But the interesting thing is that in the psalm, David doesn't answer that question. There's a, how long, O Lord, shall I wait? How long do I have to endure this? And there's no answer. But in Dr. King's speech, there is. How long? Not long. How long? Not long. May it be so. In Jesus' name. Try to change a country With no armor on They headed for Montgomery And they faced those thugs Cowards swinging fists and clubs But they came back strong Crying out how long, not long Deal with the ways I've been wrong All my heroes are 